Let's open our Bibles together at this time too. The book of Acts, chapter 20, and verse 17. Acts 20.17 for our message from the Word of God this morning. Acts 20.17 will be found on page 1177 in the church Bible anyway. Today's date is April 16th, 2023. Today's text is going to begin in Acts 20 and verse 17 and go on right down to verse 27. And the title of this morning's message is Paul Says Goodbye. The Apostle Paul says goodbye. And we begin with the story of an elderly woman who heard that her friend had just lost her husband. So she called to ask how it happened. And her friend said, well, he was in the hospital and he needed an emergency blood transfusion. And I didn't know his blood type. So all I could do was sit with him and say goodbye. And I'll never forget how supportive he was. He just kept telling me, be positive, be positive. Well, speaking of saying goodbye, here in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is leaving Asia, and he knows that he's never going to see the leaders of the Ephesian church again. So he's about to bid them a really touching goodbye. The story begins in Acts 20 and verse 17, where, speaking of the Apostle Paul, it says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now to begin with, when it says Paul called for the elders, It's not saying he called for all the old men in the church to come see him. You understand that he's talking about the spiritual leaders of the church. Like when Peter says in your first reference in 1 Peter 5.1, the elders which are among you I exhort who am also an elder. Peter was the leader of the Jewish kingdom church, but he was writing to some other leaders of the Jewish kingdom church. But these leaders here in verse 17, they were leaders of the grace church in Ephesus. 
And as we're going to see, they were very dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul because he'd spent three years ministering to them. So it says in verse 18, When they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. Since Paul was talking to leaders, he's going to begin by reminding them of the kind of leader that he had been with them for the past three years. He knew that a good leader has to lead by example. And he's about to describe his example in verse 19, where it says that he'd been serving the Lord among them with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Now, when Paul says he he served the Lord with all humility, humility is... (laughs) Sounds like a grammar lesson, I know. Humility is the noun form of the adjective humble. And both of those words, humility and humble... Both of them mean not to think too highly of yourself, not to think too much of yourself. They're both the opposite of pride. And the Bible's got an awful lot of warnings about pride. Maybe the first one, maybe the, the, the most famous one, I should say, is your first one that I gave you there in Proverbs 16 and verse 18. Who doesn't know the verse that says pride goes before destruction? Now, when an unbeliever is filled with pride, he thinks so much of himself, he thinks he doesn't need God to save him. (laughs) You see that kind of thinking reflected in the very next verse in in, uh, Psalm 10.4. The wicked through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. But listen, pride will make a mess of your spiritual life as a believer as well. Wisest man who ever lived said in Proverbs 29-23, Solomon, A man's pride will bring him low. So you remember that verse the minute you start thinking you're all that. (laughs) Just remember the line from that old Beatles song that said, Pride will hurt you too. You can ask me what song later unless you don't remember it. But the point is, if If a bunch of long-haired hippies knew that 60 years ago, you should know it too by now and how many years you've been studying the Word of God. And you should do what James says to do in your next reference in James 4.10. 
humble yourselves in the sight of God and He shall lift you up. But you know, back under the law of Moses, the Jews refused to humble themselves. So God did it for them. As you see in Deuteronomy 8.2 where it says, this is Moses talking to the people of Israel, the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee. That shows you how important or what a bad thing pride is, I should say. And I'll bet you they found stumbling around in the wilderness for 40 years very humbling. But here's the thing. Today, in the dispensation of God's grace, God is not going to make you stumble through 40 years of some kind of spiritual wilderness in your life to humble you. I don't care what you're going through at this time in your life. God didn't send it. He didn't send it to humble you. That's not what He does in the dispensation of God's grace. But, if you refuse to humble yourselves like the Jews did there, well, you're going to find that things will happen in your life that will humble you. I know it does for me. I work really hard on these messages and yet every Sunday I manage to say something stupid or something wrong and later think, well, what was I thinking in saying that? And I find that very humbling. And I think you'll find life humbling too. Now, verse 19 also says that Paul served the Ephesians with many tears and temptations which befell him by something called the lying in wait of the Jews. And if you know your Bible, you know that that phrase, lying in wait, means that those unsaved Jews were constantly trying to ambush Paul, lying in wait for him, to kill him. And that's what caused Paul those many tears. It caused him to weep over them the way the Lord wept over Jerusalem when the Jews kept trying to kill him. Look at what it says in Luke 19, 41 and 42. When he was come near, he beheld the city, the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, he was talking about Palm Sunday, the day when he made an official presentation of himself to the Jews in Jerusalem. If you had known, at least in this thy day, it wouldn't have been too late to realize the things that belong to thy peace. But now they're hid thine eyes. The Lord wept over Jerusalem because He was trying to save them and they were trying to kill Him. And Paul was in Ephesus trying to save the Jews. And they were trying to kill Him. 
And that made it so he was tempted to quit. That's what that temptations there that it uh, mentions is talking about. The temptations of always having to look over his shoulder, wondering if somebody's around the corner trying to kill him. I'd be tempted to quit in the ministry if that happened to me. But in spite of it all, Paul did what he says in verse 20 of your text there back in your Bible now. And how I kept nothing back that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. And the thing that was profitable to them was the Word of God. You know what Paul says in that next reference in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is profitable. So when Paul says he kept back nothing that was profitable to them, that means he didn't just teach some parts of the Bible. He taught it all. I don't have to tell you that some churches only teach the four Gospels. And some grace churches only teach Paul's epistles. We teach it all here at Faith Bible Church. We don't hold back anything that's profitable to you as a believer. Yeah, I know Paul's epistles are written especially to you and I. But we don't want to keep back anything that will profit your spiritual life. And verse 20 also says that Paul taught them publicly. And he's talking about publicly in that school of Tyrannus that we studied in the last chapter. And he says he taught them from house to house. I spent a lot of time teaching men who live in the big house. How many of you know what the big house is? The Gray Bar Motel, prisons. Every week of my life, just about, I teach God's Word to thieves, drug dealers, and killers, men on death row. And for the past couple of years, I've been teaching a free man who lives in a house in New Zealand. And i got to tell you, uh, two or three times a week, he writes with Bible questions. And so it's a privilege to be able to teach from those houses to one another. And while Paul was teaching these elders house to house here, he was doing something that he talks about in verse 21 as well. He was testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you know what testifying is, don't you? It's what you do when you go to court, right? Look what it says in Numbers 35.30 because it was the same under the law of Moses. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not... Oh, there's our word. One witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. The law of Moses called for two or three witnesses in such cases. But in court... You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? And when you do, 
Somebody's life hangs in the balance. But when you do what Paul says here and testify to people about their need to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ, their eternal lives hang in the balance. So if you're here this morning and you're not saved or you're watching this video and you're not sure you're saved, you're not sure where you're going to spend eternity, I can tell you that the Pauline thing to do is to repent. But you got to understand what that word means. It just means to change your mind. Here's a good example of it in Matthew 21, 28, and 29. The Lord's starting out a parable here. And we won't read the whole parable, but a certain man had two sons, and he came to the first son and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. Sounds like something the father would say to his son. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and he went. So in other words, he he said he wouldn't go. And then he repented and changed his mind. And if you're not saved, you need to change your mind about God. Because I guarantee you, whatever you think about God, it's wrong. <laughs> According to what God says in your next verse in Isaiah 55.8, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. And you know why he says that. Most people think you have to be good to go to heaven, Right? Last week when I was on my way to Wisconsin, I was channel surfing the radio and I heard one of those old dead teenager songs from the 1960s that were so popular. You remember those? Where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so, so what? What's the next line? So I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. That's what the world thinks, folks. But God says in His Word that being good ain't good enough. God says in His Word, you have to be perfect in order to go to heaven. If you don't believe that, go home today and read the last verse of Matthew chapter 5. That's what the Lord says. And only the Lord was perfect. But He died to make you perfect in God's eyes and one of these days in reality in heaven. So, repent of whatever you think about heaven and how to get there and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that was the gospel that Paul was bound and determined to preach. As we see as we read on in verse 22. Back in your Bible now in Acts chapter 20. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Now, you also might want to go home this 
afternoon and read Dr. Schofield's little note one on the word spirit if you have a Schofield Bible because he's pointing out that that small letter S on the word spirit there means Paul's not talking about the Holy Spirit there. He's talking about his own spirit. We saw him say the same thing back in Acts 19.21, your next reference, where where it says, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit, small s, in his own spirit, to go to Jerusalem like we're reading here. So the Holy Spirit wasn't telling Paul to go to Jerusalem. He felt bound to go all on his own. And we know why he was so hot and bothered to go to to Jerusalem. He'd spend a good deal of time and effort going from Gentile church to church collecting money for the poor Jews in Jerusalem. And listen, after he had that money on his hands, wild horses couldn't have kept him from going to deliver it to those poor saints who needed it so desperately. Now, it's true, he could have just picked some trustworthy men to deliver it and sent the money with them. But here's the thing. When Paul handed that money over to those poor Jews in Jerusalem, he wanted what the world calls a photo op. (laughs) A photo opportunity. He wanted to be able to preach to the unsaved Jews in Jerusalem as he was handing that money over to the saved Jews. You see... All those unsaved Jews knew about Paul was that he turned his back on Judaism and they considered him to be a a traitor and a turncoat to the Jewish faith. Somebody who didn't give a hoot about Jews. He was off preaching to Gentiles. But when they saw him deliver a boatload of money, and it was a tremendous amount of money, to some poor saved Jews, do you think maybe that would make them think about repenting and putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul thought so. And all of that explains a verse that McKenna read in our scripture reading this morning in your next reference in Acts 20. And verse 16, Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And the reason he was hastening to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost wasn't to observe the Feast of Pentecost. It's because he knew what always happened on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, verses 1 to 5, it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come that year, there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews out of every nation under heaven. 
And that's why Paul was so hot and bothered to get to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. It was to get the chance to let Jews from all over the world see him hand that money to the saved Jews and then testify to them. And that explains why Paul did what he did in your next reference in Acts 20, verses 17 and 18. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church and when they were come to him, he said the words we're studying this morning. Paul sailed right past Ephesus and had the elders meet him on his way so he wouldn't have to go out of his way and be late for the feast. He was bound and determined that he was going to do more than cry over the city of Jerusalem. He was going to testify the gospel of the grace of God to them. But now, in verse 22, why would Paul end verse 22 by saying that he didn't know the things that would befall him in Jerusalem? I mean, did he really think they would hurt him for giving them money? (laughs) That's not what happens when I give people money. I don't know about you. Well... Verse 23 says, All he knew for sure was that the Holy Ghost had been witnessing in every city where he went, saying that if he went to Jerusalem, bonds and afflictions would abide him. The Holy Ghost told him if he went to Jerusalem, he was going to continue to suffer the the, the bonds and afflictions that he was already suffering from people who he wasn't giving money to. That wasn't going to change just because he got gave money. And that word bonds there, that means getting cuffed and arrested, folks. And when it says afflictions, in that context, that means the kind of afflictions you get when you're arrested in those days, beaten, like Paul did when he got arrested back in Philippi. You remember that story. You know, you and I are sometimes afraid to serve the Lord because we're afraid of what might happen if we serve the Lord. Paul knew what would happen. He had the Holy Spirit's word on it. But as we read on in verse 24, we see that he didn't care. It says in verse 24, but none of these things move me. Bonds, afflictions, Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. What course? The ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He's saying the idea of being beaten and jailed doesn't move me. And We know that even if the Holy Spirit had said, if you go, you're going to get killed, that wouldn't have moved him either, because he said, neither count I my life dear unto myself. That shows you, folks, that this was about more than just delivering money. The course that he was on was the same course he'd been on since day one when he got saved on the road to Damascus the course of testifying the gospel of the grace of God. Now in verse 25, 
He says, And now, behold, I know that ye all, you Ephesian elders, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Now, first of all, we always have to point out that when Paul says he'd been preaching the kingdom of God, you remember that he's not talking about going into the kingdom of heaven on earth someday. That was Israel's hope. That's not your hope, and it wasn't the hope of these Ephesian elders either. He was talking about the kingdom we read about in Colossians 1.12 and 13, where Paul says that the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now, I know that we're not all that familiar with King James English sometimes, but that word hath, that's past tense, folks. That means whatever kingdom he's talking about, it is not the one with lions and lambs lying together that Jewish kingdom saints are going to live in someday. It's a kingdom we're already a part of. And I think he's talking about the, the unseen overall kingdom that contains the saved of all ages. You know what that means? That means you shouldn't be praying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, because the kingdom came to you. The moment you got saved, you're already in it. As the credit card companies like to say, you're pre-approved. <laughs> you're pre-approved for heaven. Pre-approved for the kingdom of heaven. In heaven. Just haven't moved in yet, that's all. But now, here we have to ask how Paul knew they would never see his face again. I mean, it could be just that he wasn't planning any more visits to Ephesus, but the way he sounds so definite about it, I think it was because he was a prophet. And prophets knew the future. He knew he wouldn't see their faces again. But as soon as I thought of that, I thought, well, wait a minute. If Paul knew the future, how come he didn't know what would befall him when he got to Jerusalem, like he just got done saying? Well, I think the answer is Paul was experiencing the same thing the prophet Elisha experienced in your next reference in 1 Kings 4 and verse 27, where Elisha said, Her soul is vexed within me, or within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. <laughs> well, there you see that God didn't always let his prophets in on everything. And here in Acts 20... God didn't want Paul to know what would befall him when he got to Jerusalem. You see, God wanted to know how faithful Paul would be if he didn't know what serving the Lord was going to cost him. Because you see, that's what God wants to know about you this morning. And the book of Acts... The book of Acts is a transition from how things were under prophecy to how they are for us today. 
Wouldn't life be a whole lot easier if we always knew what it would cost us to serve the Lord? But we don't. All we know, pretty much, is what Paul knew, that bonds and afflictions abide us. (laughs) You may never get beaten and arrested, but look how that word bond is used in Luke 13, 11-16. There was a woman that had a spirit of infirmity, a sickness. And when Jesus saw her, he said, Thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And the ruler of the synagogue, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day, said unto the people, Come and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord then answered, Ought not this woman be loosed from this infirmity? No, this bond on the Sabbath day. That word bond there refers to an infirmity of the flesh, some kind of sickness. And I don't know what's going to befall you in your life, but I know bonds of infirmities are going to continue to abide you. And knowing that, knowing that you can't expect some healer to come along and heal you of your infirmities, do you still want to be faithful to the Lord? You know, you should be as concerned about your track record of faithfulness as Paul was. Look what he says in verse 26 of our text. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. Now this is the second time in the book of Acts Paul is quoting that verse. So if you want to really get into the depth of what he was saying there and quoting it. You have to go back and find that message. But he's quoting Ezekiel 3.18 in your next reference when God said, When I say to the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou, Ezekiel, givest him not warning, his blood will I require at thy hand. But here, Paul says he was pure from the blood of all men. Well, hey, I got a question for you. How could Paul say he was free from the blood of all men on earth if he hadn't warned all men on earth of the danger of dying without Christ? Well, the answer is found in what Paul says in the very last verse of our text. In Acts 20 and verse 27. I am pure from the blood of all men for... Here's the reason I'm pure from all the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul could say he was pure from the blood of all men because he hadn't shunned to declare to those elders all the counsel of God. Once he gave God's counsel to leaders, leaders who he knew would continue to give it to others, would give it to others, that's how he could say he was free from the blood of all men. Because then he'd done his job as an apostle. But now, 
The thing about the counsel of God is, as dispensationalists, we know that the counsel of God is always changing. Look what it says in Luke 7, 29 and 30. All the people that heard him, talking about John the Baptist, all the people that heard him, publicans, justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected what? The counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. In other words, when John the Baptist was God's man of the hour, the counsel of God included water baptism. But once God made Paul his man of the hour, the counsel of God no longer included water baptism. And understanding things like that's what makes our church unique and worth the trip. Or like Dunkin' Donuts. Remember those commercials years ago? They're worth the trip. But now, one more thing about that word record there in verse 26. I, I take you to record this day. Did you know God is keeping a record of everything that men do. Look what Moses said in Deuteronomy 31:29. Gather unto me all the elders that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. I don't know how you read that verse, but I think it's saying God's keeping a record of everything that men do, and somehow heaven and earth are doing the recording. There's different examples in the Bible of inanimate objects recording things, and I think this is one of them. But if that's true, what's it mean when it says in Revelation 20 and verse 11, John seeing a vision of the future, and he says, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Well, if heaven and earth flee away at the great white throne of judgment, how is God going to judge unsaved men if his records suddenly disappear? You know, you watch enough television court shows, you find out that if somehow the evidence gets lost before the trial, the case person gets set free, right? Well, we find out what God's going to do in your next verse, the very uh, next reference, which is the very next verse in the text. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, the book of eternal life, who's saved and who's not. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. So in other words... The works of unsaved men are also recorded in some books, right? God had a backup hard drive <laughs> saving all the things that got lost when heaven and earth disappeared. 
And together with the book of life, now he had two or three witnesses like you're always supposed to have under the law and under God's judgment system. He started out with two or three with heaven and earth, and now he's still got two or three. But here's the thing that concerns you this morning. God's also keeping records of what believers do. So he can reward us, not condemn us to the lake of fire. And we see a picture of the rewards that Jewish kingdom saints are going to get in your next reference in Esther 6, verses 1 to 3, where it says the book of records were read before the king. And it was found written in the book of records that Mordecai had told of two who sought to lay hand on the king. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Oh, Morty had foiled an assassination attempt on the king's life. And the king says he's got, he's got to be rewarded. Right? But you know what? We too are going to be rewarded. That Don't get confused. That's a picture of Jewish kingdom saints getting rewarded. But we're going to be rewarded for faithfully serving the Lord. God's Word says that. God's Word through the Apostle Paul. But here's the thing. When I started thinking about all this, I realized that when Paul describes the judgment seat of Christ, he never mentions any books. So I think what's going to happen is we're all going to do what Paul did here. We're all going to give a record of ourselves like Paul's been doing here. Isn't that what Paul says in your last reference there in Romans 14.12? Every one of us shall give account of his neighbor. No, no, of himself to God. So don't be worrying about your neighbor's faithfulness and service for the Lord. Worry about your own. Every one of us is going to give an account of our lives to the Lord. Just like Paul's doing. I mean, it's not like you'll be able to lie in that day. You're, you know, you're going to lose all ability to sin in heaven. Amen? I'm looking forward to that. That means you won't be able to lie. So, the Lord's going to let you present the evidence. Now, I know that a lot of Christians think that God's going to review their lives on the big screen TV. But that's not what Paul says. Let me ask you, doesn't the judgment seat of Christ follow the dispensation of grace? Not up and down like you make me feel better. Yeah. Well, last week in this very 20th chapter of Acts, didn't we see a type of the dispensation of grace? And now we're seeing a picture, a type, of the judgment seat of Christ following the type of the dispensation of grace, just like the judgment seat of Christ will follow the dispensation of grace. Someday we're all going to stand before the Lord and talk about how faithful we were, like Paul did, and how much more faithful 
It could have been. You know, Paul said he wasn't going to let bonds and afflictions stop him from serving the Lord. Can I ask what it takes to stop you from serving the Lord in your life? I'll never forget something Pastor Jordan told me many years ago. He says, you can measure your Christianity by what it takes to stop you. Because for some Christians, it's pretty little. There's a story that preachers tell and have been telling for many years, and I know because I told it 50, 40 years ago or something like that. It's about a guy back in the 1700s named Jonas Hanway. Jonas Hanway was an Englishman. He was traveling in Persia, and he noticed that in Persia they were using this contraption called an umbrella to shade themselves from the sun, not not to block the rain. Did you know that's what umbrellas were originally for? Do you know what the word umbrella means? Little shade. That's what, that's what they were made for. Well, he looked at that and thought, you know, I'll bet you that's something could, that would be pretty handy when I go back to England for the constant English rain. I mean, when I was over there, I carried an, I, I carried an umbrella. But 300 years ago in England, nobody carried an umbrella. So you know what happened when he started? People ridiculed him. I mean, the story is young boys pelted him with rotten eggs and cabbages. And, but you know what he did? He stuck to his guns for 30 years. And finally it caught on. And for hundreds of years after that, no proper English gentleman ever went out without carrying an umbrella. It was like a cane for him. My point is this, folks. Don't let a little ridicule stop you from serving the Lord, from testifying to the gospel of His grace. Paul didn't. Go home and read Acts again there. What is it, chapter 17, when he's in Athens on Mars Hill? They mocked him. They ridiculed him for talking about the resurrection of the dead. But here in verse 24, Paul says he didn't let anything move him away from serving Christ. So if you want to do, if you want to be able to say what Paul says here, if you want to finish your course with joy and not regrets. Don't let anything stop you from serving Him either. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Apostle Paul as we always are and his faithfulness to Thee. He didn't let anything stop him. What 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 an example for us. What a pattern for our lives, as he himself later said. And then, Father, our our hearts and minds are humbled when we see, once again, types of what you're doing in the dispensation of grace in this book of transition to the dispensation of grace. Father, we have 
all the confidence in the world in our salvation, in knowing we're going to sit with Thee someday in glory because the God who wrote an amazing book like this tells us this. Give us that hard assurance and never let us doubt Your faithfulness to us. We pray it in the Savior's name. Amen.